guys welcome back to the show more than you can chew as you know i'm your host tiffany moore we are going to read another chapter of manic a terrifying tale of a girl going to light the candle we need the candle tonight it's halloween We're just taking a little break from the doom scroll, just a little break. And then we'll go back to all of the terror happening in the world. Um, So I was thinking instead of the three deep breaths, because it is Halloween, um, I was going to pull a tarot card for people tonight. Um, I love tarot. I have tons of tarot decks. I love reading tarot cards. I can never read my own, but I love reading other people's tarot. But I really, really, really love my archetype deck. Um, My archetype deck is called The Wild Unknown, and the artiste is Kim Kranz. And um, it's one of my all-time favorite decks, so... I decided that's the one that I'm going to use tonight. I'm going to pull a card and, I'm, and we're going to read about the archetype to help us with this little session tonight. Maybe it'll give us some insight. Maybe it'll just be interesting. Maybe we'll get a little tid, tidbit of wisdom. Who knows? So I'm going to let one of the cards kind of fall out of the pile here as I'm shuffling to see what kind of message would like to come through on this All Hallows' Eve. Okay. Oh, my. Um, okay. Um, you know, I, I don't... 
for the archetypes, I don't know if this is pronounced agape or agape, but we got the agape card or agape, you know, uh, I guess whatever way you're looking at it here. And this is one of the very last cards of the deck. So, um, these are considered uh, the group of the initiations cards. There's different groups to all the cards. It's a full deck of cards. It has all these different archetypes and I don't know if it's a goppy or a gape and I think LXX2, I wanna say that L means 30 in Roman numerals. Let's see. So I wanna say it's like 30, 40, 52, but let's double check just to make sure because some people are into numbers, LXXII, Roman numerals. 73 was way off. How can it be 73? Okay, I think it's 72. I put an extra I in there, 72. So the number is 72. <laughs> the card is called Agape. And there's a bunch of, if you're into symbolism, there's a bunch of candles on this card and it just looks like a lot of shadow and light. So we're gonna read the meaning of this card. <clears throat> it says, devotion, unconditional love. This is for you guys. What if instead of putting yourself at the center of your spiritual practice, you put God, goddess, or nature at the center? How would this change your approach? Such is the energy of agape. It is alive when we are in awe and wonder, our breath taken away by the sacred force that surrounds us and asks us for nothing in return. This card can indicate a spiritual initiation that stretches your capacity to love and serve. You sense the earthly as the heavenly and vice versa. You sense the earthly as the heavenly and vice versa. Hold on, I need a drink. Uh, there's a tickle, right? There's a tickle. There it is. <clears throat> um, where am I? Such an initiatory... <laughs> such an initiatory moment can appear in any form and like a healing balm to the modern soul, its effects last a lifetime. The agape card may also suggest you reassess what you worship every day, consciously or unconsciously. What are you elevating? Where does the sacred ladder take where does the sacred ladder you climb ultimately lead to? So the card represents it says service, reverence, honor, and joy. And then there's like these little captions. Agape can also be felt as an overwhelming love of family, partner, community. Recognize recognize it by a deep swell of gratitude. The Greek word agape informs the English word agape to have the mouth agape. Okay, so I guess it is a gape. To have the mouth agape is to be awestruck by something of breathtaking delight. We are made humble once again. I like that. All right, so that is a little card we read. Maybe we'll read a tarot card before the next book for you guys. All right, but now it's time to get into the next chapter. 
of Manic. Are you guys excited? Scared? All of the above? These are short chapters, so I might read a couple chapters tonight because they're pretty short. All right. Manic chapter two. Get yourselves in a place where you can get comfortable and just fucking relax for a little bit, please. <clears throat> I was a star in the making, cold and chilly with a calculated twinkle. It was a favorite conceit of mine always to have fresh flowers in my office, a touch of femininity to offset my no-nonsense pinstripes and neutered smile. And not just a single token rose either, but armfuls of the rarest, most fragrance most fragrant or flamboyant blooms I could find. Red parrot tulips, delicately scalloped at the edges, or orchids so freshly, so fleshy they bordered on the obscene. I justified the expense of telling myself that it was good client relations. Any attorney who could afford hothouse tulips in December must look like she's doing something right. In truth, it was simply camouflage, something to hide behind, to divert attention. At that point in my career, I could easily afford to blow a few hundred bucks a month on flowers. What I couldn't afford was scrutiny. The rumor around the office, was, which I didn't discourage, was that I had a wealthy boyfriend. Little did my office know that depression was my secret admirer and had been for years, long before I ever started practicing law. I never knew when depression would come to call or, how, or for how long or how dangerous it would be. I only knew that I had to keep it secret or else. Or else what, I wasn't quite sure, nor was I willing to find out. So the flowers had to stay fresh and pure. I couldn't allow a hint of darkness or decay around me, at least nothing that couldn't be masked by a Casablanca lily. I gave my secretary a standing order to change the water in all the vases daily and to discard anything that looked to be dead or dying. There would always be more, I figured. So long as none of the partners ever found out that I didn't have a clue of what I was doing as a lawyer, most of the time, that I hated every moment of this existence and every one of their faces, and that the most fragile thing in the office was not, by far, the tulips. So long as they just came in, dumped off a file and said, nice flowers, and left without noticing the deep purple circles under my eyes, or the mound of wet wadded Kleenex under my desk. So long as we all agreed not to look too close, or to ask too many questions, there would always be more flowers. Call it superstition, call it strategy. Whatever I was doing, it apparently worked because one April afternoon, a few years before my father died, I was asked to join the team of lawyers working on the firm's big Michael Jackson case. Our first order of business was to find an expert witness to testify that Michael's songs were not substantially similar to any of the plaintiff's songs. We needed a musicologist of the first degree, someone who would impress a jury, not just with his expert credentials, but with his de dis demeanor, his sincerity, and his innate likability. 20, lunch 20 lunches later, we'd narrowed the field down to two stellar candidates. One was a famous university professor, well-known and well-respected in the insular world of entertainment expert witnesses. The other candidate, let's call him Joe, also had impressive degrees, but he was 20 years younger and still had hair, lots of it, tied back in a long, neat ponytail. Plus, he was a practicing musician on the road, 10 months of the year with a band that had known better days, but was still hot enough to command its roadies' respect. 
As the junior attorney on the litigation team, I felt it was my role to inject some youth into the lawsuit. This was, after all, rock and roll we were defending. So naturally, I was leaning heavily toward Joe. It didn't hurt that his band's biggest single had also been the theme of my high school prom. Impressed as I was with his credentials, I was still just a few years shy of a crush. The day Joe was to be introduced to the rest of the team dawned bright, hot, and sunny, which cinched my choice of restaurants for the big meeting. Where else but the Ivy, that homey little ersatz cottage on North Robertson, that vine-covered nest of vipers where the industry elite meet and mingle over fresh blood and crab cakes. I told them, I told the team in preparatory memo that, in my opinion, Joe struck just the right note with his unique blend of musical expertise and showmanship. And sure enough, he showed up looking professional but hip in a crisp black Armani jacket and well-worn jeans. I could have kissed him. I could have kissed everyone. It was going so well. By the time our crab cake entrees arrived, our table was convulsed in laughter. One, one anecdote leading to the next in a seamless flow of one-upmanship. I caught glimpses of people at other tables watching us, wondering who we were. We lingered so long over our creme brulee and cappuccinos that the angle of the sun started shifting to the west and the patio began to grow cool. Slipping on his suit jacket, one of the senior partners asked about the time. Almost four, I said. Are you serious? Joe said, surprised. I assured him that I was. Shit, he said. I forgot to take my lithium. The next few minutes are engraved in slow motion on my synopsis. Joe excused himself to get his medication from his car. Nobody said a word until he got past the gate, and then the table exploded. Senior partners don't laugh easily, and record execs are even harder to amuse. But for the next few minutes, until they spied Joe coming back through the gate, you'd have thought lithium was the funniest word on, on this earth. I wasn't in any position to evaluate the wit. All I could hear dog-like was the tone, contempt. And all I could think was, what would they say if they saw the pharmaceutical cornucopia that I was carrying around in my purse right now? If plain old lithium was good for such a belly laugh, they'd die of hilarity over my dozen assorted mood stablers, antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents, and atypical antipsychotics. I'd often wondered what would happen if the firm ever found out about my mental illness. Now I knew. I knew without having to be told that Joe was strictly history from that point on, and he didn't have the chance in hell to act as Michael Jackson's expert witness or to have any affiliation whatsoever with our firm in the future. And I knew with certainty that I would have to tell him. While everyone else laughed, I flashed through my options. One, I could defend poor Joe, reminding my colleagues of his credentials, his reputation, and his pre-lithium impression. Two, I could defend manic depression, educating these influential men about the importance of battling stigma whenever possible. Or three, I could simply say nothing and wake up tomorrow knowing that I was one step closer to making partner and one step farther away from myself. I faced my future unadorned and realized that I wasn't quite ready to give up the fairy tale yet. Not the one about making partner. Looking at these men sitting next to me, I knew that I would never be one of them. Believe it or not, I wanted to be callous too, to be hard enough never to care, but I wasn't. The truth was, I was soft deep down, where the really hard decisions are made. I knew that I would cry over what happened to Joe. No, 
The only real fairy tale I couldn't relinquish was the one where I wake up one fine sunny morning to discover that the spell is broken, the curse is lifted, and I am not bipolar anymore. Manic depression was not my identity back then. It was simply something I had, like a nasty flu or poor credit. I wasn't even convinced I was real most of the time. I just knew that whatever it was, it was all my fault. And I didn't like to look closely at that. My choice was made. To defend Joe would be an act of solidarity with the disease. Symbolic, subtle, but internally unmistakable. And I wasn't about to sacrifice my future for something I didn't really believe in that might magically go away any morning now. So when the others left, I threw my head back and chortled. I listened to their jokes with apparent avidity for the next few minutes. And when Joe returned to the table, I, like everyone else, avoided his eyes. It took me a whole week to get up the courage to meet with Joe in my office and tell him the bad news. I didn't mention the lithium. I made up a story about old-fashioned execs wanting old-fashioned experts. All the time I was lying, though. I wanted to warn Joe to be more careful, to, to remind him that high-profile high jobs demand low-profile lives. But mostly, I think I wanted to confess, to obtain his forgiveness and absolution for the sin of hypocrisy that was still eating away at my hopelessly Catholic soul. Instead, I offered him flowers, a glorious bunch of daffodils, fresh from the flower market that morning. Forced blooms, the florist had called them, trying to justify the price tag. Forced blooms. Flowers made to bloom early, before their time. It sounded painful, but they were worth every penny. I would have paid anything at that point for a graceful goodbye. Joel left with his daffodils. I grew sick of the sight of myself day after day, pretending to join in in the lithium jokes that continued to circulate around the office until they were finally succeeded by Prozac jokes. I began avoiding other members of the litigation team, coming in later and later until eventually I was doing almost all of my work at night. I started giving away my arrangements to the graveyard cleaning crew, first a stem or two, then a handful, then a whole bunch. Until one afternoon, I arrived at the office and discovered I was completely out of flowers and had forgotten to order more. I picked up the telephone and dialed the florist, then put it down at the first ring. There weren't enough flowers in the world, I realized, to beautify this office, this life, or this lie that I was perpetuating. I picked up the phone again and dialed another number. The headhunter who had been chasing me for the past six months. Listen, I said. There's something you should know about me before we talk, because it's going to make a difference where I go and what I do. I have... I checked myself. No, I am manic depressive. So what do you think about that? So's my cousin, he said, not missing a beat. And do you know... He rattled off the names of three top lawyers at rival entertainment firms with whom I'd worked with closely in the past. But I'm not actually sure you should tell anyone you've got it, he said. Of course I shouldn't, I said. That's why I'm going to. Then I smiled, a real smile. Stories don't always have to end happily, I realized. Sometimes it's just enough that they end, to make way for new stories. I looked down at the legal pad next to my phone and realized I had sketched a perfect daffodil. I'm gonna read the next chapter too. Chapter three. Get some water here. Spooky. Spooky. Okay. 
I was sitting in the head and neck surgeon's sleek art modern waiting room, looking out his wraparound windows at an endless expanse of sun-flecked ocean and feeling unaccountable happy. I'd never unaccountably happy. I'd never been there before, never met Dr. Cameron, had no idea what he was going to say about this mysterious swelling in my face and neck that had thoroughly baffled my internist and endocrinologist and resisted every antibiotic in their arsenal. The word tumor was mentioned, and in fact, that's why I was there, to talk about tumors and MRIs and CAT scans. Cat scans. <laughs> Big, scary words, but I was focused on the small things. I noticed that when the sun hit the water cooler just right, it made rainbow wallpaper. There shouldn't have been any sun. It was half past four on the last day of November, but the sky was relentlessly, brilliantly blue. I could feel the sunlight through my clothes, dilating my pores and flushing my pasty white winter skin. I could feel the little hairs along my arms and back of my neck start to ripple with pleasure like wind-stroked wheat and, oh my God, the little hairs. Most of the time I barely noticed that I had any body hair at all. Like most redheads, mine was very fine and delicate, almost invisible to the eye and soft to the touch. I never had to worry about waxing or bleaching. I remembered to shave my legs only if I was feeling particularly sexy in the shower, which wasn't very often or likely back then. Since my father's death and my suicide attempt in Santa Fe, the depressions had become longer and deeper and harder to forget. But innocuous as the little hairs might have seemed, they were my manic tripwires. Inevitably, when the chemical balance in my brain started to shift, they were the first to alert me to it. As soon as I felt them come alive again, I knew that the depression was finally lifting. I knew that it was hypomania, heavenly hypomania at last. The little hairs loved hypomania. The world was suddenly all about textures and tastes and sensations. Too many and too much to be ignored. It was all so wickedly delicious. Honestly, the best part of being bipolar, until my nipples protested against a surfeit of silk and I felt like a blind man faced with too much braille. That's when the little hairs turned inward, prickling and burning at every sensation until every nerve in my body was acutely inflamed and winced at even the slightest whisper of wind against my skin. But the little hairs were certainly happy that afternoon, content just to sit there soaking up the sun in the surgeon's fancy waiting room. I wondered if I should remind myself of the gravity of the occasion, that this was neither the time nor the place to be feeling so good. Happiness is fine in its season, but happiness out of season is a sure sign of doom. That's why you should never trust a bright blue sky in November. It might tempt you out the door. It might lure you to forget for a moment or two that it is in fact the dead of winter or will be tomorrow or the next day, but definitely soon. How could I ever hope to tell a normal person about the terrors of being happy? Unless there was a damn good reason for it, something objective and verifiable like a winning bingo card or a negative biopsy. Happiness wasn't a safe harbor for me. It was just another checkpoint on the road to mania. Stop, wait a minute, hold on there. Was I happy? And if I was happy for God's sake, why? Was I doing something inappropriate? A manic precursor like singing show tunes under my breath in public or breaking the ice in elevators or winking at random just for the eyelash kisses. 
Was I enjoying life inordinately? I had to ask because what felt like happy now might well be too happy in a minute. And we all knew where too happy could lead. You get too happy. You go pick wildflowers in the middle of the night from your neighbor's lawn, wearing nothing but a sneaky grin. You get even, you get even happier and you blithely make a left turn on a red light in Van Nuys in front of a couple of cops with lots of prescription meds rolling around loose in your purse. In my case, it could definitely be illegal to be too happy. So when the little hairs tickled or the, mint, or the midwinter sun shone more brightly than usual, or I heard myself actually laughing out loud, I stopped if I still could. I stopped just to see if I could stop. Then I ruthlessly pinpointed the moment on the mood scale, skewered it like a dead butterfly. Happiness management was a cruel science. It may have kept me safe from unexpected butterflies, but it killed all the flutter and delight. And yet I was happy. Sitting there trying to remember the difference between a CAT scan and an MRI, I was happy. Stop. Wait a minute. Hold on there. Why? I could think of a million reasons not to smile, but none of them really counted when the sky was pure delphinium blue at half past four in the afternoon on the last day of November. It was absurd trying to talk myself out of a smile when smiles were so rare with me. I summoned up the nasty IRS letter sitting on my kitchen table, the latest in a series of doomsday bulletins threatening garnishment, levy, and seizure of all my assets. I knew I didn't owe the money they wanted, but I was having a hard time establishing why. My finances, so intermingled with my father's, had fallen apart after his death. I had proof of nothing except for my illness, and the IRS wasn't interested in that. Short of dousing my, letter my letterhead in blood, I had nothing left to say. I squeezed my eyes shut against the problem, squeezed them tight and hard until a familiar acid moisture started to gather in the corners. I could still cry. That was reassuring, I thought, as a lone tear strolled down my cheek. Was I happy? No, but I was rather enjoying being unhappy for the moment. Leave me alone. But I wasn't alone. I was never alone. My nagging fishwife of a conscience was hissing in my ear, the same old mantra. Stop, wait a minute, hold on there. If I really was happy, God help me, and why? For once, I thought, I knew the answer. Generic apropizal, I don't know what is it, brand name Abilify. Aripiprazole, aripiprazole, she even sounds it out in the book, aripiprazole. It was a silly name, froth on my tongue. Just saying it made me giddy. I'd been taking the drug for two weeks and I still couldn't pronounce it with a straight face. Aripiprazole, Abilify, wasn't much better. Was drug-induced happy still happy? Was it the right kind of happy? Did it count? As long as it didn't land me in jail or in a strange man's bed, I really didn't care. I'd take happy any way it came, prescription strength if necessary. The receptionist opened the door, called out my name, and then led me down the hall to the exam room. The doctor's surgical instruments were laid out in neat gleaming rows on white linen, a perverted place setting. But this was no picnic. This was serious business, and the man who could pronounce my doom was about to walk through the door. But the door opened, and doom entered, and I was once again unaccountably happy. Nobody ever told me that Dr. Cameron was a dead ringer for Montgomery Clift. 
You'd think they would have mentioned a little thing like that when you schedule your first appointment. It certainly would have made the long wait more tolerable. I'm waiting for Montgomery Clift, you could have told yourself as the quarter hour stretched to half, the half to a whole, and so forth. Until it was nearing the end of the last day of November and you were the only patient left in the waiting room. Dr. Cameron apologized at once for the long delay. An unexpected hospital admission, emergency surgery, something like that. I wasn't listening. His handshake was warm as his smile and almost as kind as his eyes. This was not at all the cursory, me doctor, you patient, wear chart type of greeting I'd come to expect from first appointments. He held my gaze and my hand, a half dozen heartbeats longer than I was prepared for. Not necessarily an inappropriate amount of time, but long enough for the little hairs on the back of my neck to crackle and for a deep rosy flush to spread from my neck to my chin to my cheeks. Thank God I'd been running a fever and I could blame the heat on that. Or could I? Dr. Cameron didn't take my temperature. He didn't even look at my chart. He looked at my eyes, then reached out and smoothed my hair back behind my ear. He picked up one of the utensils, a medium-sized one, somewhere between a shrimp fork and a speculum and blew on it. To warm you up, he said with a wink as he gently inserted it into my ear, and I tried simultaneously to tame my pulse to place his familiar aftershave. Beautiful, Dr. Cameron said at last, returning my hair to its original place. I didn't know whether he meant my inner ear or my hair around, or me at the moment, and I really didn't care. I tried to concentrate on something totally asexual and sterile, like the acoustical ceiling tiles or the autoclave. But then he was tickling the cilia in my nose, and it was all I could do not to snort with rapture. The little hairs were far too happy. I knew that I should stop and worry about that, but I also knew that the throat exam was coming next, with all its symbolic potent. Portent? <laughs> Jesus. And I needed to stay in the moment. So while Dr. Cameron explored my mouth and tongue with his long silver probe, his lips just a fraction of an inch away from mine, I rid my brain of all extraneous thoughts and multiplied ceiling towels fast and furiously in my head until he was done. Good news, he said, stepping back and beaming down at me. I don't think it's a tumor. The inflammation's too symmetrical here and here. He stroked both sides of my face from earlobe to mid-throat as he talked. No doubt it's all the medications you're taking. They've kept you so dehydrated that your body is trying to hold all of the fluids it possibly can, which would explain the swelling in your peritoid and submandibular salivary glands here and here and under here. More strokes. Who knew Montgomery Clift had such a delicate touch? But then, wasn't Montgomery Clift gay? I looked closely at Dr. Cameron, who had finally stopped stroking my face and throat and was jotting down notes in my chart. He was awfully good looking, not just movie star handsome, gay movie star handsome. Could it be that the heat between us was only in my imagination? I'd like to think that at 42, my body was wise enough to know, viscerally, when sex was in the air. A few extra seconds of a handshake, eye contact that lingered just a bit longer than necessary, a touch gentle enough to be a caress in other circumstances. These were all excellent clues, but the real mystery wasn't whether Dr. Cameron was actually gay. It's whether I was actually manic. Maybe the electricity in the room was just manic fallout, the residue of my supercharged sensibilities. Maybe the heat was just a fever and strictly my fever at that. 
But then he looked up from the chart and flashed a great big movie star grin at me, all gleaming white teeth and charisma. And I knew I didn't give a damn about whether he was gay or straight. He was gorgeous. I'd just have to work all the harder to win him over. That was all. I used to be pretty good at persuasion. Over the years, I developed quite a repertoire of tricks, little subtleties of voice and eye and carriage that I could usually count on to sway a hesitant jury or soothe a recalcitrant judge. This wasn't much different. I leaned forward in the chair and looked into the far back reaches of Dr. Cameron's eyes. Then I smiled ever so slowly and gradually without saying a word, an old ploy that usually made the other person smile back in anticipation. Everyone loves to hear a secret. The more secret, the better. So I dropped my voice down low and conspiratorial, conspiratorial and said, you know, of course, that you look exactly like my all-time favorite movie star. He laughed. Montgomery Clift? Yeah, I've heard that one before. And not just Montgomery Clift, I continued. Montgomery Clift in A Place in the Sun, you know, the one where he kisses Elizabeth Taylor in that incredible close-up that goes on and on for what seems like forever until you can't believe it ever got past the censors. I tried to restrain myself, but my eyes kept wandering down to his lips and waited there for his reply. Not only do I know it, he said, I actually have a copy of his original screen test with Elizabeth Taylor. It's a real collector's item. My ex gave it to me for my last birthday. My ex, he didn't have to say that. My mind quickly calculated all the possibilities in that pre-hyphenate. Pre not married, possibly not involved, or not married, but still very good friends with his ex, which was not as good as not involved, but was certainly better than married. My eyes moved to his ring finger, bare, no tan line, no telltale, no telltale indentations on the flesh, a very uninvolved finger. Wow, that must be fantastic, I said. Does he look like you in the screen test? Does he kiss Elizabeth Taylor? Does he kiss anybody? Does he talk about kissing? Wow, I'd sure love to see it sometime. He put down my chart. I can tell you're a real fan, he said. I'd be happy to lend it to you if you promise you'll bring it back next week. But aren't we through? I thought you figured out what was wrong with me. Do I have to come back? You don't have to come back, he said. And the emphasis stopped my heart. But I hope you will. At least come tell me what you thought of the tape. I'm in surgery on Mondays and Wednesdays, but Fridays are usually late, especially Friday afternoons after 4 p.m. Actually, try to come then if you can. You can usually see the sunset from here around that time. It's been absolutely incredible lately. It goes on and on forever. Just like the kiss, I suppose. Another pyrotechnic smile. I started to tell him there had been no sunset that day at least none that I had seen, that the waiting room was in fact still relentlessly, brilliantly sunny and hot at half past four. That afternoon, I was seriously smitten and I wanted to tell him, to warn him, that it was a bright blue sky in November and we should both be very, very careful. But he'd already excused himself and left the room to get the tape. Stop, wait a minute, hold on there. I didn't even have to ask if I was happy. I was terribly, terribly happy. And what had just happened? Was that terribly happy too happy? And scariest question of all, whatever had I done in, done this time to deserve it? Damn, damn, damn. If there was one sure sign of mania's approach, 
It was this secret conviction I got that I was the ultimate arbiter of other people's sexuality. This sudden rush of confidence that no man or woman, if I so desired, would be beyond my jurisdiction. I pulled out my mirror and started to reapply my lipstick. Then I willed myself to stop. No. I resisted the almost physical need to comb my hair, straighten my skirt, check my breath. No, no, no. I didn't have to succumb to this manic whirlwind in my ear, which was urging me to seize any happiness in my grasp because tomorrow I could be worse than dead. I could be depressed. No, I said. I didn't want to grasp at happiness anymore. For once, I wanted happiness just to float gently down and settle on my shoulder. Dr. Cameron would be back any minute, and I was painfully aware that the part in my hair was crooked. I could feel the asymmetry along my scalp. Looking down, I noticed a little snag in my stocking that I could have easily hid if I had just stood up for a second and tucked it under my skirt. I was pretty sure there was a scuff mark on my left shoe, too, that I would probably have buffed out real quick with a spit and polish. But manic seduction with me is all about fixing smudges, pretending that I'm perfect in all the places I'm most flawed. So I forced myself to sit stock still, and I tried hard not to picture how pale my lips must have looked in the naked light. Terribly, terribly happy was quickly dissolving into not so terribly comfortable. How absolutely marvelous. How thrilling. Probably nobody but a manic depressive can understand that putting on the brakes is sometimes far more exhilarating than winning the race. Something was clearly working, and this time, I was sure it was the new medication. Abilify was actually nicknamed Goldilocks, because when it worked, it struck a balance between too much and too little dopamine until it finally, hopefully, hit on the amount that was just right for you. Just right. Who would have thought that I would ever be satisfied with just right when more is always around the corner. But I knew that manic corner. You had to round it at least three times the legal speed limit, and sooner or later a cop would be waiting for you on the other side, eagerly jingling his handcuffs and utterly indifferent to your diagnosis. That was why happiness, for me, no longer lived in excess. It lived in the absence of, the absence of pain, the absence of depression, the absence of consequences I never intended to incur. I looked down again at the very visible snag on my thigh, and yes, there was a scuff mark on my shoe. Then I straightened up. I felt noble and victorious, resisting the little hare's call to action. Dr. Cameron returned, patted me on the back, and handed me the tape. Let's have one last look, he said, open wide. But my body had gone rigid with propriety, and my jaw was practically clenched shut. Wider, he said. Come on now, open up wide for me. It would be hard to resist a line like that, even if you were not getting manic, but I did my best. Before Dr. Cameron's aftershave made me forget all of my good intentions, the exam was over. He reached down into his pocket and pulled out a lollipop, I swear, a big red lollipop. He handed it to me and laughed at the expression on my face. This is actually your treatment, he said. I want you to go out and buy several bags of these when you leave. It's extremely sour, and when you suck on it, it's going to, sim sim to stimulate the parotid glands production of saliva. But I warn you, it's going to be very, very uncomfortable. You're going to feel a whole lot worse before you feel better. For more reasons than you could possibly know, I thought to myself, bending down and sticking the lollipop in my purse, 
Just forcing myself not to execute a come hither head toss when I straightened up was almost more than the little hairs could stand. But it was war now. War against all those natural impulses that naturally got me into trouble. And I didn't expect to be comfortable. I stood up and extended my hand, thanking Dr. Cameron for the tape and promising I'd get back to him as soon as possible. God, his hand felt good in mine. But I pointedly didn't make a definite date. And as of that moment, at least, I figured I'd just return the tape to his receptionist in a few days and let matters take hands, take their own unfettered course from there. I'd put the repertoire of little tricks away, along with all my other nets and snares. I left the room without a backward glance. The elevator was too slow, so I took the stairs. Ten, eleven, twelve flights down, and the back of my neck still tingled. When I stepped outside, twilight was, was starting to descend. I automatically headed into the direction of my pharmacy, but then I realized that for the first time in years, I had actually walked out of a doctor's office without any prescriptions to fill. No wildly expensive pills or potions, just permission to buy a big bag of lollipops when I got home. This must be what life is like for normal people, I thought. No drugs, just candy and bright blue skies in November that want nothing more than a spectacular sunset. Maybe the Abilify fairy tale was coming true after all, and I really was Goldilocks, and this really was a happy ending. Happily ever after, for once, or at least happily ever after, for now. Or better yet, just right. All right, we're going to end it there. It was chapters three, or chapters two and three of Manic. All right. Happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, we now bring you back to your regularly scheduled programs. Back to the doom scrolling. Back to the outside world. But I hope this was a nice little reprieve for everybody. Um, even on the nights I can't read very well because <laughs> I'm feeling a little manic myself. So... I'll talk to you guys soon. Take care of each other and yourselves. All right. Have a good night, guys. Happy Halloween.